The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Nice to see everybody tonight, and uh, <laughs> nice to notice too that a lot of you have your name tags on, and it's okay if you don't, but you might want to get one before the small groups. So in about 30 minutes, 35 minutes or so, we'll divide into groups of three for our small groups. And uh, basically beginning, you know, we'll have several of these small group sessions during the eight-week class every other week. And uh, taking this time in this sort of formal way where we're sitting next to each other, probably sitting pretty close so you don't have to use a loud voice, introduce yourselves, Get comfortable. If everyone is, it's nice to sit at the same level. So if everyone's comfortable on the floor, great. Otherwise, maybe three chairs so you're all at the same height. Decide on an order. And I'll give you some cues, but basically sharing, like as a human being, as a suffering human being, what have we learned? (laughs) I mean, the great tragedy isn't that we suffer. The real tragedy is not having been very interested that we suffer. Like, what are the roots of that? What can be done about that? I mean, it's really tragic the fact that mostly we're too busy living our lives in ways that cause suffering to be interested in the causes of suffering. I mean, that's really sad. It's tragic, actually. And that's what we see. That's what kind of moved the Buddha, that uh, compassion after his deep insight, you know, the, under the proverbial Bodhi tree, and just sort of reflecting on what he had come to understand about the nature of the mind and causes of suffering, causes for relief, basically, having a better sit than we just had, probably. And... Uh, What really moved him was sensing how everybody, just like him, wanting to be happy, but in their, with their desire to be happy, planting seeds of stress for themselves and for others. And it broke his heart wide open. And he was willing to do what was probably bothersome to do, which is like try to teach, share what he had come to understand, because it's, as we all know, doing our practice, it's subtle what the Buddha is pointing to. For minds that are really hooked on superficiality and spending our time and our mental energy on things that ultimately don't seem that important, a lot of the time, not all the time, of course, um, it's hard to kind of break through the force of habit You know, that's interested in this and that. There's a beautiful story from Thai Buddhism about a monk who lived in a cave on an island and he was quite respected. And when he died, people checked out the cave just to kind of get a sense of how this monk, this uh, widely respected monk lived. And they saw on the wall in the cave a painting of a big laughing Buddha. I think it has the head has the hands up, and underneath was this inscription, 
Oh joy to discover that there is no happiness in this world. It's interesting that it makes us laugh. I mean, it's, pr- it's a provocative statement. And uh, in the Thai forest tradition, when uh, Ajahn Sumedho and others started the, the sort of took the Ajahn Chah lineage from Thailand to England, they had a picture of their teacher, Ajahn Chah, this really well-known, well-loved Thai meditation monk, uh, meditation teacher and Buddhist monk, uh, with that kind of stance, like they evidently was drawn on the wall of the cave, like the Buddha stood, uh, smiling, laughing, whatever, and the same inscription. Oh, joy to discover that there's no happiness in this world. And it's not like somebody made a big mistake that there's no happiness. But maybe you get the sense of relief, like, I don't have to chase happiness. Like when there's no happiness to be owned, to be gotten. See, our lives really is, they're freed up. I can actually live for the benefit of all beings because there's no happiness to pursue. Right? Can you sense, intuitively sense the relief like we're not going to win at this? There's a similar, I mean, this is a, a little bit of a stretch, but some of you have heard me mention it because it's just, a, it was such a powerful scene in one movie. It's actually quite a good movie. It's uh, made a long time ago. I re- remember seeing it, I think, on Thanksgiving at the Uptown Theater, and it's called Black Robe. I'm sure you can get it online somewhere. And it's about the Jesuits interacting with the indigenous people here indigenous nations, uh, especially around where the St. Lawrence Seaway, or St. Lawrence River, rather, goes into the Atlantic Ocean. So I'm not even sure if that's... What is that province? Is that Quebec where that goes in? Okay. But anyway, and then it goes in, and that was a way into the Great Lakes eventually. And and so there's this Jesuit priest, and he's interacting with... Uh, Native people, of course, and uh, it's, it really unpacks that, just that whole era in sort of a simple way. But anyway, the, the, the one scene that was really moving was just the particular chief of these small band of people, and uh, he was injured and some fighting, and they escaped, but he was going to die, and they pulled over into an island in, this, uh, in the St. Lawrence River, and he's lying there, and he's looking around, and he's clearly you know, near his time of death. And he remembers the place for many dreams that he had had through his life. And he realized, oh, I never understood those dreams, but it was the, I was dreaming of the place where I was going to die. And he had this reflection, like, if only I knew what that dream meant, I could have lived in such a fearless you know, fiercely, fearless, open way, knowing that someday, but not now, right? Because it's not my, the place I've been dreaming about, right? And it's sort of like we can have that same sense of release, being able to live fearlessly, fiercely, fiercely, compassionately, knowing that we can't win, 
that there's no happiness to be found or no utopia. Like we're not, we're not a per, it's not a personal failure on our part that we're not happy yet. It's kind of a relief. Like, oh, I don't have to judge myself or hate myself or compare myself to other people who I might imagine are happy because nobody wins at this. Like the happiness that comes from trying to have the life that I think leads to happiness, have the body, the mind, the relationships, even the understanding. So I I, I wanted to raise that at the beginning of the class tonight because that's something that can come up in the small group sharing is just the maturing of your relationship to life, to your life, not theoretically or philosophically, but just the mind or the heart, heart's relationship to living. What is it about? Like, is it about getting happiness? Well, I don't know about you, but that's stressful. To be somebody who's looking for happiness is stressful. But to be somebody, and and I don't know if if the set you were able to touch into this in moments, but to be somebody whose heart has put down that project for a moment, well, what does that feel like? Not Not having to inhabit that idea that I'm somebody trying to be happy. Going from being unhappy to happiness. And part of it, I mean, there are many ways to creatively come at that. And it only, it's only going to be useful if it's grounded here in the present moment, right? It can't be theoretical, conceptual. It has to, we can use thought, but the thoughts have to be pointing to the reality of this moment, the activity of the body and the mind, and how the mind is relating how the mind is knowing this activity of the body and the mind, what to do with this life, this moment of experience, this moment of living. Try to get something, try to get rid of something. That's the normal mode of living beings relating to the present moment. What can I get? What can I get rid of, get free from? So basically an attitude of struggling with the present moment. But now with the reflection we get from the Buddhist teachings, we can train the mind, right? Usually in more simplistic moments, like when we're doing our 30-minute sit or our 45-minute sit in the morning, whatever we have time for, of course. And especially once you've taken the time to settle, put down the load, calm the mind, Get a little samadhi, a little unification, gathering, using your meditation object to sort of gather the energies of the mind, collect, settle, ground. And then to allow this other object, doesn't mean you're not aware of your breath or not aware of the body, but everything now, the actual object of meditation, what the mind, what the heart is interested in, is this very alive dynamic of suffering and the end of suffering, the arising of suffering or stress 
or just viscerally that squeeze, that tension in the throat, in the heart, in the gut, right? The body will viscerally express any mental burden. So you can feel it, in other words, bodily, energetically, the holding, the burdensomeness of the moment. Oh, this is interesting. So instead of immediately assuming there's a me who has a problem, we stay more innocent. I don't know what this is. I want to say I'm suffering, but I'm not going to. I'm going to just stay in this more innocent, there is this burden, whatever, and as I relax with it, as I get interested, as I open, as I allow it to express itself, the squeeze, the tension, the whatever, including any mental activity related to that, we begin to discern like how it's coming to be, what's supporting it, what attitude, what view allows this heart to become, have this subjective experience of being burdened. And then even in comprehending how suffering is arising, does that change anything? Knowing that it's just this natural process we call suffering, that's already an incredible intervention in our life. Like going from being oblivious to what's going on to having a clear sense. Oh yeah, this is what's going on. The mind is remembering something from earlier in the day. The mind's taking it personally. The body is mirroring that mental activity and that feels like this. There's a very compelling sense that I'm not okay, that this is not okay, that something needs to be fixed. A very compelling sense of wanting to get away, get distracted so I don't have to feel what I'm feeling. Oh, this is the, that entanglement the Buddha and others called dukkha, right? This is unsatisfactory. This is hard to bear. I either want to fix it or run from it, hide from it. Oh yeah, okay. What does it mean to have an honest, fearless, relaxed, clearly comprehending relationship with this experience? And what is the impact of like the, that quote I read at the end of this said, that the cause for suffering is the not understanding it. Is that actually true? So we want to check that out. Like as the mind comprehends it, not cognitively, not thinking about it, but just in d- that more direct feeling and observing, knowing, does the heart begin to feel less burdened, less entangled, less oppressed? And that we can check out. And then we learn something about the causes for release. The not being confused by suffering is the cause for its release. So in the small group tonight, you might talk about your own experiences of seeing the deepening of the entanglement, more weight, psychic weight, feeling more burdened in life, And like whatever the mind, wisdom was able to discern, like how did I become such a suffering human being right now? Because, you know, clearly there have been moments at least when we've really been a miserable, 
unhappy, oppressed human being by life, by the conditions or circumstances or whatever, however we place the blame for that suffering. So what have we comprehended in terms of how we got how we've gotten to those places? And you it'll be interesting, like in the small group, like the how much we want to tell the story. Yeah, this person did this to me, right? To externalize the cause. Of course I was suffering because this happened to me. I had cancer or this happened, my partner left me or I lost my job or my kids didn't listen to me, my cat didn't come home, whatever it might be, right? As opposed to like what actually happened in the mind, right? The, was, the cat wasn't there and my mind was not okay with it. Or my partner said they didn't love me anymore, and this is what my mind did with it. It went, err, <laughs> right? So the the err wasn't the partner leaving. The err was knowing that the partner was leaving, or knowing what the partner said, and then doing this. So what is the this, the crunch? So you could share like the deconstruction of how it is that it really seemed like you were the suffering being. How did that come to be? And a lot of the times, that eventually dissolved, fell apart, you being a suffering being. So what have you learned about suffering going away? How does that actually happen? What, and how does it relate to understanding? Not conceptual understanding, not a story, but directly understanding the nature of how the mind works, how the mind operates. So where have you seen consciously or with mindfulness suffering, 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 and then the dissolution, the falling apart of suffering? And what have you comprehended as suffering was going away? How did the wisdom in the mind understand what allowed for the suffering to fall away, to disappear. In particular, just checking out the Buddhist teaching, what did the mind, what was the mind understanding or comprehending that supported the suffering going away? I'll just give an example. I mean, there are many ways You know, the, I'll give one one that's coming to mind. It's just an uh, old story, probably almost from the time of the Buddha. But, and again, many of you have heard me repeat this story, but somebody rowing a rowboat across the Ganges River at night, they have a, you know, a lantern, candle or whatever, so that people can see them. And it's a populated area, there are other boats. and But he ends up, this person ends up crashing in another boat. And I present start screaming and swearing like, you know, boats illuminated. How could you be so stupid to crash into me? He grabs the lantern and, and he realizes there's nobody in the other boat. It had somehow gotten untied, was just floating in the river. And so there was a lot of anger and he was a suffering human being. He was so angry that his boat was damaged and so on and so on. And then all of a sudden that contracted state disappeared. So what did the mind understand? 
but the boat was still damaged. But the mind understood that there was nobody to blame. It was just causes and conditions. So like, now normally we, normally we wouldn't even notice, like we wouldn't see cause and effect. In hindsight, maybe we can, but how many times were we a really suffering human being and then all of a sudden a, a wider perspective came in, more information came in, and the construction of me being a suffering human being no longer made sense with the additional information, so the mind was forced to abandon that stance of being a suffering human being. I've had several examples where I thought my partner said something or she thought I said something, you know, and we become a suffering human being, and then eventually, somehow, we decide to clarify, like, what did you say, or what did you mean? You know, and then realizing, oh, it wasn't what I thought, or, you know, and then it's like, oh, so I don't have to be a suffering human being. Because I needed the story in order to be a suffering human being, and the story was taken away from me. God damn it. So now I have to be a not suffering me. Because we feel so much more congealed as a self when we're a suffering human being. It's interesting in this investigation these weeks to see that suffering is suffering, but there's something juicy about it. There's something addictive. Maybe that's a better word. There's something addictive about being a suffering human being. And there's something, initially at least, disorienting about not suffering. Like we lose our bearings, our compass. The self loses its compass. And this is like, really goes to the heart of the Buddhist teachings that suffering is really related to understanding. It's related to understanding in a way that puts self, a permanent sense of me or mine, in the center or everything is framed with that self view. And when the mind learns that that's an option, that we don't have to frame things from that perspective of a self, permanent self, and the more times we see that, like comprehend, selfing as the cause, not framing with self as the cause for release, the more then we can consciously participate in not suffering. Right? It becomes a practice. The unhooking becomes a practice. And like I've mentioned, maybe I, th- I can't remember if I mentioned this last week, but you know, when I think over the 37 years of you know, r- having a really sincere and dedicated practice, like what's really changed, it's I've become really suspicious. If ever the heart feels burden, I'm really curious about it because I'm pretty sure it doesn't have to be that way. doesn't mean I don't suffer, but when I'm suffering, I'm almost always curious. I mean, the curiosity kicks in pretty quick. There may be a few moments, maybe a little longer, but it isn't long before the mind is curious. Well, this is interesting that I feel like a miserable human being. What am I not seeing? What's not being seen clearly? What's here 
and now but not seen, being seen, being understood. Because the wisdom in the mind has learned slowly over the years that when they're suffering, there's something not being clearly seen. And that something is always here and now, and it can be seen. And one of the useful ingredients is interest and confidence that whatever it is that needs to be seen can be seen. doesn't mean it will be easy. There's a lot of deflection, you know, like, look over here when that's not where we should look. And there's all kinds of really useful, skillful means like pretending that our suffering isn't a problem. Even though actually, subjectively, honestly, I really feel like a miserable human being. But as a skillful means, I'm going to pretend in a sense, sort of a provocative word to use in this case, to pretend. But I'm going to practice as if I'm not a suffering human being. As if whatever it is that appears to be suffering as if it's okay that it lasts forever. Because that really illuminates how the mind is hooked, imagining that it's really okay for it never to change. Because then it it kind of, the mind that's hooked says, no! (laughs) And then we get to see that that's not self. That's just that mental pattern, whatever it is, that screams, no, this can't last forever. I really want this to go away. Then wisdom gets to see, yeah, there's that voice, that conditioned habit or that conditioned reaction. But because now I'm seeing it, wisdom seeing it as just something being known, wisdom discern, yeah, yeah, of course. But it isn't self. It's just that pattern, that mental pattern. The mind doesn't need to identify, doesn't need to personalize that freakout. But it's only when you see the freakout from a point of view of relative balance that you that wisdom understands that the freakout is just a freakout, not self. When the mind is out of balance, then every mental pattern, every action, reaction seems like me or mine and the mind is hooked. So this is one of the things we're really stabilizing in these first weeks is how to actually, actually be curious about dukkha. And you can probably imagine the easy way is to get interested in relatively mild experiences of suffering. You know, just being a little bit frustrated with the weather or with the traffic or with you know, impatient with somebody or impatient with a meeting, impatient while you're sitting with knee pain or back pain. And then it's like you'll see that kind of bright energy come in. Oh, oh yeah, this is, this is suffering. I'm not like, there's a sense of a somebody not liking this, a sense of a somebody who wants this to go away. This is exactly what I need to wake up to. I'm so glad I, it occurred to me to use this as practice. Let me get interested in observing the reality here. There's this sense of a me who's burdened by life, by whatever the particular thing that's going on. Okay. And we're, and we're just sort of first and foremost, we're stabilizing. 
So you can continue to use your meditation object, breathing in, feeling the knee pain, breathing out, feeling the knee pain, or feeling the whole body. So whatever your samadhi meditation anchor is, whatever your go-to training object is in your meditation, where you've trained your mind to gather and to put everything else down, you can use that in conjunction with the sense of being a suffering human being. But you're not drinking the Kool-Aid. You're allowing the reactivity, the idea of you, this is not fair, I don't like it like this. But you're seeing it as something happening. You're not being the one who is suffering. You're observing that as something happening. And you're using your meditation object so that you can feel safe enough to relax and allow the caricature of Mark, the suffering being, to do its dance. It's really good to have Dharma friends where instead of the sort of usual venting, you know how we do that with our friends, complain and blame, and they, you know, being good friends, they'll kind of let us vent and basically support our rights to be a suffering human being. You have every right to be in that constricted state. Go girl, go guy, go person, you know. Not realizing that we're complicit in that other person's suffering. And that it would be so much nicer to say, yeah, but it's just that being known. It's just that being known. So let's together step back, in a sense, figuratively, figuratively speaking, you know, and realize that's not actually you. It's just something being felt, something being observed, being known. And, uh, and it's an unnecessary burden when identified with it. And you'll get really good with ordinary things like knee pain, where it really feels oppressive, like God's just punishing me. I've got you know, 20 minutes left to the sit. And uh, I don't want to leave the sit because once you leave the sit, then I'll never want to sit to the end of the sit ever again. You know, once I justify doing this, you know, so I'm in it. And just to realize, like, I mean, sometimes we just bump into it accidentally, like we get distracted and then we're done being distracted. You know, we're back in the moment. And then we remember, oh yeah, that's what I'm suffering because of my knee pain. <laughs> so we have to like, and we catch ourselves in the act of reconfiguring how to be a suffering being because we had forgotten that we were a suffering human being because we were entranced in whatever distraction. You know, we were thinking about some movie we'd just seen or whatever, but relatively neutral, you know. And then we get really suspicious about suffering, being a suffering being. Like we really start getting what the Buddha was pointing to. Suffering is a mental construction. Uh, optional mental construction. Now again, this is a very provocative statement. This is not something you would say to somebody in poverty or somebody with cancer. Hey, you know, oh, I see you're, doing, you're having a hard time with your cancer. Well, did you know that your suffering is optional? It's just a mental construction. So, you know, get with it. <laughs> because your suffering is bothering me, by the way. 
as your friend, you know, I'd be a lot happier if you weren't so into your suffering. So, but individually, this is not a something we put on others. Individually, we should be curious about what this, how this might be useful for ourselves. And then, again, it's not something we say to somebody, but it's something we can model. So, like, if you are with your friend who's really suffering, then the way you model this is you don't have a problem with them suffering. Like you're really totally okay being close to them and being real with them. And you're not sort of like in a hurry for their suffering to go away. And you're modeling feeling safe with their suffering. Yeah, yeah, and this is a great gift we can give each other is not to freak out when somebody is really suffering, like to really realize we, the heart, the mind, or wisdom, whatever you want to call it, has the capacity to be in the enormity. I mean, there are times when there's enormous pain, enormous confusion in our own life and other people's lives, and we're being asked, in a sense, to show up, to contribute, to be supportive. And we don't have an answer. Like, we can't make the pain go away, whatever the pain might be. But we can practice being unafraid. And it's surprisingly powerful. And it took a long time. I mean, I, you know, I'm still considered, consider myself a beginner in this. But like, uh, especially around people dying, um, or like where there's a really painful loss, like a divorce or somebody's death, and uh, some, like a loss of a loved one. And to, yeah, just to be there from the, with the perspective that this too, this too belongs, this too can be here. So from my point of view, I'm somebody like in terms of my conditioning, that wants to have something, some balm to make the suffering go away, and I don't have it. So, like, first and foremost, I'm being okay in that, like, flavor of helplessness, not being able to make this person's suffering go away. Like, i got to get comfortable being helpless. And then when I'm comfortable with my own exposure, then I can begin to include to whatever degree, that sort of empathetic connection with their exposure, right? Because whatever they're going to, I'm vulnerable to that. Maybe not in this moment, but wisdom understands like it's just a matter of time before something like that happens to me. And so these are the kind of moments you can share in the small groups now or break into the small groups. And remember, there's some etiquette to these small groups. Confidentiality, say your first name. Um, it's re- you get your two to three minutes, even if you don't have anything to say. So there will be a strong tendency in the groups to want to go to the next person. 
If you're in earshot, I'll be ringing the bell. But if you're in one of the farther away spaces, somebody with a clock, keep track of time, two and a half minutes approximately. And, um, and then you really get that time. So if you run out of things to say, totally okay, just to sit with your friends, help you, the people who are listening, you just really relax. This is another way, like, they may be, the person who's speaking might be feeling compelled, like, I should have something to say, but you're totally okay with them not having anything to say. And you're totally okay with them being nervous about not having anything to say. Right? You're really holding the space. You're not afraid of whatever happens in that space. And that's really a way to support the other person whose turn it is to speak. And then maybe after 20 seconds of silence, you might have a few more thoughts to share or not. Either way, it's okay. Okay? So everybody gets their time. And then with whatever time's remaining, just have a free conversation around the subject of what have you learned in your life about how suffering comes to be, how it releases or anything that's come up from the discussion tonight. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.